Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we are doing something kind of fun. We're crossing over with a, a more recent uh, podcast, uh, co-hosted uh, hosted in the UK, co-hosted by Colin Kusky and our friend Phil Nichols. So hi, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Hello. It's good to be here again. Yes, it's good to have you. And I was trying to think how this came to be what we're going to do. Part of it is we've been looking at doing a particular Robert Sheckley short story, but the <laughs> the adaptations are both European adaptations and we've been having a hard time tracking them down. So uh, in order to have something else to talk about, we decided to pick up something that Colin had posted on our Facebook page and also had texted the group text that uh, James and Colin and I have. And the funny thing was, um, well, I guess I should introduce what the topic is. The, the topic is the fact that uh, Denis Villeneuve, who is adapting Dune right now, once he finishes with Dune Part 2, he's planning on taking up Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. And Colin sent that out over the group text and posted something about it on the Facebook page. And unbeknownst to either of us, Phil and I put almost identical comments in. Um, <laughs> so what, what did Phil comment? Oh, Phil's comment from the Facebook post. And Phil, if, if this is incorrect, you can correct me. <laughs> uh, I wish Phil knew luck in finding a story in there. That's yes. it. <laughs> and my response on the group text was, hopefully he adapts some story into it. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't seen the Facebook post. Phil hadn't seen my, my text thing. So I thought it was, uh, you know, great minds kind of thing. But, you know, it's also appropriate to have Phil on here because uh, Rendezvous with Rama, written by Arthur C. Clarke, you know, kind of the one of the most famous British science fiction authors. Yeah, yeah, we we like to uh, we like to claim him although he he really thought of himself as Sri Lankan for much right. of his life. Right. Yes, and that came up uh with uh Phil who recently joined me for Hugh goes there and we talked about the Fountains of Paradise which mm -hmm. is sort of set in a fictionalized Sri Lanka. Yeah. Oh cool. So, real quick, before we uh, dive into the actual topic here, Phil, why don't you talk about Science Fiction 101 and what, what you and Colin are doing there? Oh, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Science Fiction 101 is uh, a podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the future of science fiction, or at least that's what we claim. Um, we, we mostly <laughs> talk about things that interest us, and um, we, we tend to set each other ridiculous quizzes, which neither <laughs> of us can really do very well. <laughs> This is true. <laughs> yes. And I think at some point we did discuss something by Arthur C. Clarke, but I can't remember what it was. Prelude to Space, A Fall of Moon Dust. Could be, could be. <laughs> did we talk about Rama at all? I Maybe in passing? Yeah. I, I have a feeling we did, but I can't remember how it came about. And it happened before you did your great big 2001 reread and rewatch, too. Oh yes, that's that's true. Yeah, I yeah, suppose you, we you did talk about that book, right? Yeah, we should we should mention that. I I just spontaneously felt like um, revisiting two thousand and one. Uh, this was a few months ago, um, mm -hmm. and I, I, what it was, I laid hands on the four K uh, Blu Ray of two thousand and one, so it was an opportunity to watch it again. And having watched it again, I then had to read the book, and then having read the book, I had to read Clark's book about the writing of the book. So I kind of got back into Clark again. Nice. What What did you think of the 4K version, Phil? Oh, stunning. Really stunning, yeah. even though I don't have a 4K TV. So I, I even then I wasn't seeing it at its best. <laughs> but even downscaled to ordinary HD, it's far better than any previous version. It's beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. 
that would be cool to get my hands on. I, that was my favorite, one of my favorite parts about the movie was just the cinematics. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yep. We watched it on in just HD. Right, right. So what prompted both you and Phil to make that comment about right. Rendezvous with Rock? <laughs> well, this makes sense that, that we, we should talk about, we, and we always do this, right? We talk about our history with the material. Only, only James had never previously read Rendezvous with Rama, mm-hmm. right? Where, oh, you guys have both previously read it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe going back 35 years? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So, right. so I read it back in like 2015 on the recommendation of Jason Allred oh, okay. at work. Um, because he was recommending me science fiction titles. This is where I was trying to become a better nerd. Oh. Um, and th- this is where I picked up like six of the 12 Hugo titles that I had read before I started doing the podcast. And so I read Rondo with Rama, I enjoyed it. But then when I reviewed it for Hugo's there, I remembered parts of why I didn't love it. Uh-huh. Um, and and during our conversation about Fountains of Paradise, we were talking about adapting it to the screen. And Phil made a comment, and I can't remember it verbatim, Phil, sorry, about Ronda with Rama and how it would be very difficult to adapt to the screen because yeah. of the lack of the traditional storytelling. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So, Phil, what what about your history with Ronda with Rama? Um, I think I probably first read it in the 80s. Um, okay. I'd read some Arthur C. Clarke before that. Um, it was not my favourite Clark at that time, still isn't. I've read it a few times since then, and most recently I think I, um, well, I, I skim read it over the last couple of weeks for doing this podcast, but I think the last full reading that I gave it was probably two years ago, something like that. And it, it's not a great book, but I get absorbed in it very easily every single time. Yeah, I find it's kind of polarizing when I look at it online. Um, because <laughs> you get a significant fraction of people who who are just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. It's it's just amazing. It's wonderful. And then other people who are like, yeah, okay, but what's the point? Yeah, right. Well, so, I, um, so from my perspective, the I think one of the things I like about this book is that it seemed like an adventure novel more than yeah. traditional storytelling. And I enjoyed the exploratory or I guess the exploration journey of getting the Rama, exploring it, and the. Uh, the captain and his perspective and and all that is yeah just an, an adventure book yeah so for one other opinion uh we have on the audible version there's an introduction from robert j sawyer and and he says this hopefully everybody can hear it now what makes this book so special well in fairness you'll quickly discover that it's not the characters Those were never Clark's main concern. He was never particularly interested on a literary level in individual human beings, but he was endlessly fascinated by humanity as a whole and its place in this great, vast universe of ours. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting quote. Yeah, at at least half the content of the story is uh, the... United Federation of Planets that they set up in there, right. where they're trying to decide, you know, why is it here? How do we help the people that are exploring it right now? And how do right. we respond to it being here in a larger context? Right. And Clark, one of the things that Clark likes to do is muse on the future of religion, which is funny because he was an avowed atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he introduces the uh, cosmic Christers <laughs> who believe that Jesus was an alien, which is kind of hilarious. Um, and then there's the Pandorans, right? Also, who just completely object to Rama being opened, which we right. kind of understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's that's the I think that's the fun of it, though. Is that you don't know where you're going to get. Yeah. So probably a good idea to back up and talk about what the story is actually about 
So we didn't decide who would take that duty. <laughs> we could toss it to Phil. To talk about what the story is actually about, you have to presume there's a story. Ah, there we go. <laughs> and this is where you run afoul of Colin's sensibilities. <laughs> Colin was feeling like he was on a little bit of an island on this one. Um, it's a frequent occurrence, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Phil? Can you give us a, a capsule review of what happens in the book? I, th- I think so, because um, it... It doesn't take much to summarize it, really. Um, a big thing appears in the solar system. We don't know where it's come from. We don't know why it's here. We don't know where it's going. So we send out um, a, a, a kind of a, an exploring party to go and take a look. They take a look, and then it goes away. And that's it. That's all that happens. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and the bulk of the book is that exploration. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. where the joy of the book is. It's it is in mm-hmm. the detail of that exploration, but in in broad terms, it's a mysterious thing that comes and goes, and it's um, there's a similar thing that happens in Fountains of Paradise, although in there yes. it's just a tiny subplot, but here it's the entire book. Yes. So, what do we want to talk about about the story before talking about uh, the adaptation part of it? I want to hear what Colin has to say about this. Yeah, yeah, let's, let, let's let, let Colin uh, defend the book. Because, <laughs> okay, I, I will say, I, it's not like I hate the book. It's just not, it's not the kind of science fiction that I love. Well, so let's talk about traditional storytelling. And I'm going to use the story Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> There's no character development. Gulliver's Travels is about one guy traveling through a fantastical world and all the experiences that he has. You don't think he learns anything? Oh, learning things, yes. But learning let's... things about himself. That... No. Oh, okay. And uh, I would say the same thing about the Odyssey, the Iliad, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. And so, you know, for traditional storytelling, I just covered three or 4,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this idea that uh, character development is, is a required part of storytelling is uh, an interesting statement. Maybe it makes for more entertaining for today's culture, mm-hmm. um, but certainly not required for a story. There's, I think there's a lot of story in there. The question is whether or not uh, the public will find it uh, financially interesting enough sure. to go watch a movie about it. Sure. I, I'm i not sure that I agree with your examples, just because I feel <laughs> like you do you do know something about the inner life of, of a lot of those characters, especially Huck Finn. Um, I have, I have but, a, counter, I mean, a counterpoint for you, I guess. Uh, yeah, but... Do they change over the course of the story? That, I mean, yeah, character development means there is some change, right? Um, and Huck Finn, I think, does. Um, Have you ever considered that the ramen object is a character? No, but I considered <laughs> humanity a character in here. And the character of humanity is really what's being explored in the story. But the ship's more interesting than humanity. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that lines up with what Robert J. Sawyer said about Clark and his fascination with humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You don't get a ton in the book about the way humanity reacts to it. You could you could make an entire book out of just how does humanity react to this object, right? That, this is an entire book about how humanity reacts to its object in two, <laughs> two different phases. In one of the phases, we get the individual characters that are exploring Rama in real time. Sure. And in the other mm-hmm. one, we get the political and uh, cultural discussions about, you know, what does this yeah. mean? How are we going to respond to it? Should we be threatened? Okay. When we are threatened, what are we going to do about it? From from my perspective, what we get is abstracts of the proceedings of the congressional panel's <laughs> reaction to it. Um, not well, really humanity's 
it, it's not very well developed. Um, mostly the book is about going inside this thing and what's, what's in it. But we do definitely see a reaction from yeah. Hermes specifically. Right? We do. Yeah. Yeah. So. A little bit. Well, we do. The, the, uh, what you call the cosmic Christers. Yes. Right. <laughs> so th- there's also a response from someone from one of those people. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the response from the captain who we spend quite a bit of time in his head. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, like you said, traditional storytelling, what is traditional storytelling? Is there such a thing? And maybe, you know, we have, we have a scholar on our call. So maybe we should <laughs> let him talk about it sure. because there's a lot of different kinds of storytelling. Like you said, something like the Odyssey, it's these guys go from place to place and encounter different things. Do they change and grow over time? I would argue that they do. Uh, sort of, by the end, um, sort of right at the end, <laughs> he realizes, maybe I should go home to my wife. Um, but So, uh, so I, I guess I'd like to hear what Phil has to say yeah. about traditional, ah, traditional storytelling, but I would also like to hear what Colin has to say about what the story is. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, let's hear from Phil, then, since you're, you're our, our person who teaches film. Um, if you're talking about storytelling in a film, can you give us a I don't know, a, a, little, a little primer on what you would look for? Yeah, character and character development. But uh, Colin's absolutely right. There's, there is another tradition in storytelling, and I think we need to make a distinction. If we're talking about the book, I think we need to make a distinction between storytelling and literature with a capital L. Mm. And I think there is a long tradition of stories where things happen but characters don't necessarily change. That's storytelling. Um, and then there are things which are considered literature with a capital L, which is things happen and characters change. And it's, it is a cultural thing that we've decided as a culture that the thing that matters most to us is character. But Colin's absolutely right. There is a long tradition of storytelling that is in this other mode. And I think what Clark is doing here is he is, well, he's using his instinct, which is to not do character too much. He's more interested in these sort of um, interplanetary conflicts between these different governments on the different planets and, the, uh, the as you say, the proceedings of this big uh, committee. Um, that's of more interest to him. And I think he's, he also sees how trivial that is compared to the, oh my God, there's an alien presence in our <laughs> solar system, which is the gosh wow aspect of it. And, and, and what science fiction sometimes gets accused of is pursuing the sense of wonder at the expense of storytelling and at the expense of character. And, <laughs> Therefore, that's why Rendezvous with Rama sticks out like a sore thumb from the entire canon of science fiction. It is one of the few novels that really doesn't have character development of any substance at all. Um, and I can only think it's deliberate on Clark's part that he's trying to, to play down the significance of how things feel to individuals. Because the story is much bigger than that. This is about the whole of humanity and the whole future of our civilization. But there's one problem with that, and that is he doesn't deliver. He sort of talks about humanity changing because of this encounter, but he doesn't show what that change is. Um, obviously, that leaves it open then for there to be sequels, and of course there have been sequels. Um, right. But I, exactly I, I, I ignore the sequels because they didn't exist when he wrote the book, 
and it was years and years and years before anybody thought of doing a sequel. So it, it was not in his mind. It was not his intention to do a sequel. Right. It was in, intended to be self-contained. Um, mm. So it, it is a very peculiar piece. I do completely defend its right to not focus on character. But if it's not going to focus on character, it's got to put the focus somewhere else. And it doesn't quite do that either, in my view. Mm. But I... But I don't hate it. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a, it is a very interesting piece of uh, science fiction writing. Yeah, it's definitely compelling. And, mm. and that's the, the funny thing about it is because it, it, it's a different style. And when I talked about this on Hugo's there, my guest commented that he felt like this felt like a winner from 10 or 20 years earlier than it actually was. Right. Where, <laughs> yeah. where by the time Rendezvous with Rama comes around, you have books like The Left Hand of Darkness and, and The Forever War and, and things that are more complex storytelling. You're like, how did it beat out Forever War? The new wave <laughs> of authors. <laughs> no, it didn't win. It didn't beat it. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. Or it felt more like Golden Age science fiction. Yeah. yeah. The Science Fiction Encyclopedia has an interesting quote about the book. Because it won seven awards. The Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus, the mm -hmm. BAFSA... Uh, another one that, that I'm not remembering right now, but I can look up, the John W. John Campbell, w. Campbell, the yeah. Jupiter, and the Cyun Award. And uh, the, the encyclopedia, Sci-Fi Encyclopedia, has this to say about it. To what extent the book deserved it, and to what extent the award celebrated the return of a much-loved figure to the field after many years' comparative silence is unclear. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So this idea it's, that maybe it's a book that belongs in the 60s instead of the 70s is an you know, appropriate characterization. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Except, um, I, I, I completely go along with what they're saying there. Um, and one of the things we can, we can point out is that the book was an enormous bestseller when it came out. It was one of the biggest selling science fiction novels for years. Um, oh, I had a train, a train of thought, which I've suddenly derailed there. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, about whether this is a, a book from an earlier era. What I think is interesting is that by 1973, when this book comes out, science fiction has gone through this whole new wave thing, which wasn't really yeah. a thing. It was possibly multiple things. But in the 60s, the late 60s, you had New Worlds magazine being published in the UK, which was publishing all sorts of experimental fiction. And you had Dangerous Visions, the anthology edited by Harlan Ellison, Mm -hmm. which was, again, publishing stories that were supposed to be dangerous because they were doing things that nobody had done before. So the 60s, the late 60s, was characterized by all this experimentation, all this new stuff. But then in the 70s, Clark comes out with this book. And yes, it feels like it's from an earlier era, but it sounds almost as if he's um, raising a finger or two to the new wave and saying, look, there's <laughs> life in this old stuff yet. I, I don't know that he ever said that. I've never seen anything to that effect, but it really felt to me um, when I was first studying that the sort of the history of science fiction is that maybe what Clark was doing. Um, and similarly, Isaac Asimov was making a comeback into science fiction, having spent a decade really being everything but a science fiction writer. Um, and both of them seem to be doing this stuff that was more or less traditional science fiction. And it was mm. as if the, the part of the field was 
basically saying, look, it doesn't all have to be this new experimental stuff. But in its way, I think Rama is experimental. <laughs> but but what it's experimenting with is doing away with character. It's very bizarre. I mean, there's always a subsection of science fiction fandom who points backwards, right? And yes. wants wants to return to that with the with yeah. the puppies, right? There was the was it the sad puppies who wanted more science fiction by white men? <laughs> yeah. Well <laughs> it broadly that's what it ended up being because yeah. a lot of the people challenging the sci-fi norms tend to be uh, women or people of other genders or people mm-hmm. of other races, mm-hmm. right? And the the science fiction they have created is fantastic. Yeah, um, I've been actively trying to read more of it over the last several years because of that. Yeah, um, but that's really threatening to people because it's change, and and maybe that's the very heart of Rama. Mm. Um, this idea that. There is no longer any question as to whether or not we're alone in the universe. Right. And, and that even evokes ideas uh, from um, Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. Arrival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those deal with uh, individual people's response to this idea that, you know, they're aliens. Some people learn how to time travel in their own lives. Uh, other people jetted themselves out of spaceships in order to contact yeah. this thing, which is, you know, so widely traveled. Mm-hmm. The, the curious difference with Rama, though, is that it, on the face of it, it is going to be a first contact story. But once our crew of intrepid heroes arrive on Rama and manage to get inside of it, they realize there's nobody there. So it's, yeah. it, it's like an abandoned vessel. It's a kind of a Mari Celeste, um, scenario. Or, and I think Clark kind of hints at this somewhere in the book uh, it's a bit like opening up the egyptian tombs you know opening up yeah. pyramid and and finding all the all that remains of a civilization but not finding an actual live civilization and i think all of that is fascinating you know reading about the um the, the discovery of the Egyptian tombs and the, all the people who went in there and found stuff and brought it out. Um, all of that is really very fascinating stuff in real life and would make very interesting fiction as well. Mm-hmm. But we're kind of conditioned to expect our stories, um, if they're in books, we're kind of conditioned to expect them to have characters who have personal crises and that somehow the personal crisis relates to what they're doing or reflects what they're doing in some metaphorical way. And that's the whole dimension that Clark seems to um, willfully refuse to engage with in this particular mm-hmm. book. Yeah, because it's about the actual exploration and not about some deeper metaphorical thing. Yeah. Um, they're... Phil basically spoiled the fact that <laughs> that they never find any Romans, right? <laughs> they, they find essentially a terrarium um, that that is living in some sense in that there are um, animated things that happen, like like it, it 3D prints a bunch of useful tools um, that look like right. animals, right? Look like crabs or yeah. look like spiders or or things, mm. giraffes. Yeah, except <laughs> you don't know that they're 3D printed. So at some point they, they enter the. Rama ends up being big, 50 kilometers by 10 kilometers, and yeah. it's spinning to produce an artificial gravity, and they know that it's hollow. So there's something, there's not something inside of it. Right. Right. So then they, they, they manage to enter it and find out that they're inside of a hollow cylinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, most of the cylinder appears to be habitable on the circumference so that you can experience the gravity. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a what they call the cylindrical sea, which is right in the middle. There's a, a great big band of completely frozen water. Right. Uh, and then they come across these bots, droids. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not, not the 3D printed. When they right. eventually right. break into New York, they find out there are like holographic storaged, holographically stored images of lots of things. Right. Patterns of things. Patterns. Right. Yeah. Yeah, replicated. There we go. How about that? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Somewhere between 3D printing and and replicating in Star Trek. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's fair to talk about, like, the sense of wonder of, of it, right? Try Trying to, and this this is why the book works, uh, to the extent that it works for anybody. The, the reason that it works is, like, imagining yourself ducking your head into a 50-kilometer-long cylinder and trying to imagine the scale of that because I can't, I can't really picture it, um, and and the whole cylindrical sea. You know, what would it be like to look up above you and see ocean overhead? Um, <laughs> It'd be it, a really it, big submarine. Yeah, <laughs> it it just kind of boggles the mind, and that's that's where the power of the the book comes in. But I think it goes a step further than that as well because many of these things are presented as mysteries. So, right. um, for example, they, they, Clark goes into this quite detailed description of the staircase. You, you, you imagine entering this cylinder sort of on, yeah. along the axis of it, and you need to get to the, to the, the curved inner sides of the cylinder. How are you going to do that? You'll need some, some stepladder or something to go down. Yeah. And he describes the stairs and he, he, he knows because he's worked all of this out. He knows that the gravity is going to vary as you move from the axis of the cylinder down uh, round to the outside of the, the cylinder, and therefore the stairs don't need to all be the same size. The steps don't need to be the same size. Um, and I th- I can't remember which way it goes, but I think they start off being very long steps. Um, and the further down you get, the more they turn into a conventional staircase, or, or it might be the other way around. I can't remember. But he describes I, I thought this. They just skipped the stairs at first and well, used that, the railings. That's the thing. To go down, they do skip the stairs, and they find using the the banister is far more mm-hmm. efficient. And when I first read that, I thought that's genius, of course. Mm-hmm. But then you think about, well, why are those stairs there? Well, they're so you can get back up again afterwards, because you can't slide up as up a. Uh, a handrail so you need the stairs for going back and of course what the the astronauts do the the explorers do if i remember rightly they go down a block of these stairs and then they think "Hmm, we better check that we can actually get back up and then they climb them up and they find it's really strenuous to do that now all the time clark is doing that as a reader i'm thinking this is going to be important later on in the story. I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen, but something is going to force them to have to go back up those stairs. And when they do, we're going to be prepared for it. And I think this is what he does beautifully in the novel, is he sets up various things. Like the the frozen sea is kind of a mystery. But at a later stage in the book, if I remember rightly, Rama... Uh, swings closer to the sun and doesn't the sea begin to melt and turn into liquid? Yes. Yes. And then you have... It doesn't melt like a normal uh, lake would would melt. I mean, it it does in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, But it's heated from the underside. Yeah. Melted from the bottom up. And then the consequence of that 
is shown. And again, that ties into some other descriptive stuff that he puts in there. I can't remember how it goes now, but there's some descriptive stuff about the kind of the drainage areas, the the kind of the walls at the end that have to be enormous to to contain Mm -hmm. the sloshing of the water back and forth. So he describes all these things in a mysterious way. So you've got no doubt what it is that is there. But what you wonder is, why is that? Why have they built it that way? And then later on, you learn why they built it that way, even though we never meet the people who built it. And I think mm-hmm. that's genius. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as as somebody who grew up in a cold weather place, you know, I remember we, we, we always said we had five seasons in Anchorage, and one of them was breakup. Mm-hmm. Because once the rivers and lakes all freeze over, uh, the entire winter – it just feels quiet because you don't hear rivers and, 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 you know, running water and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden in the spring, you hear the water again. And if you're lucky enough, you're there when the ice begins to crack and it's incredibly loud. And so it, it was very visceral to me when they're talking about the, the breakup of the sea um, and just how it would be terrifying, that sound, because it sounds like glass breaking, but on, on a scale of the entire cylindrical sea, I... I it would be amazing. Yeah. The, the thing that impressed me most about the Slendrical Sea is later on when they're sailing on it mm. and the waves start. Right. And because it's cylindrical, you can watch these waves travel all the way around and right. know when they're coming. <laughs> yeah. And then to, you know, the designers put in baffles right. to help stop the waves yeah. so that they don't ever, you know, build to such a level that they slosh out of right. the area they're supposed to stay in. Mm-hmm. So what else do we want to talk about before we get into actually talking about how how you adapt this movie? Oh, Colin's story. <laughs> Colin's story. You're gonna. Well, I started in Cottage Grove, Oregon, in <laughs> 1970. 1970. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. That wasn't very specific, I suppose. No, I don't think you were. <laughs> well, I, I talked about why I think this is a story, and then we, you know, Phil kind of talked about yes, there's there's multiple ways of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I, I I guess I thought you had something along the lines of. Um, what your version of the story actually was or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong. And you can cut this part out. <laughs> oh, no, no, you're right. Um, and we've, we've actually talked around it, so I haven't yeah. talked about it pointedly. Right. And it's this idea that you know, humanity is really the character. Mm. And while the character doesn't develop, exploring the many ways that it responds to it, like there's, there's a religious way, there's a scientific way, there's a political way, there's a military way. Right. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, like, and maybe that is a disappointing thing about the book, it leaves, and it yeah. leaves us with all these things. It's like, yeah, you know, we tried to blow up something we didn't fully understand, and we, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the funny thing that I think about this one is this: this book is often held up as like the exemplar of hard science fiction, and then at the end, there's some star drive mumbo jumbo that happens. <laughs> so yes. I think right at the end, he's like, just in case people think that, that I'm not uh, going to allow myself to, to speculate, you know, about what right. might be possible. Um, I mean, I guess hard science fiction, you can still speculate, right? It just has to, you, you have to have some idea that it, presumably future technology uh, could get us there. Yep. The spikes with the lightning bolts and the buttresses. Right. And, right. Right. Yeah. And there's the, the, the fun thing about this is it's a staggered reveal, right? Because they first they first crack open Rama. Well, first they have to land there, right? They have to make sure that they can land on it. And where are you going to land? You're going to land the, on the axis so that you don't get thrown off by the rotation. 
Right. And he answers all of that by, you know, you park your ship on there, and then there's something mm-hmm. that it kind of slides up against so it can't go any further. Um, yeah. They they get in. It's completely dark, so they're having to use a spotter scope from their lander. Right. right? And, and then all of a sudden... Well, I think how they get in is also telling, too. Yeah. Right? It, it, it was designed to actually allow people to yeah. get in. They yeah. didn't have to break in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't have to cut in or anything. Yeah. And so, yeah, then they're, they're under that spotter scope for a long time. And then the sun comes out, right? And then you have all of that in reverse where the lights start to go out at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you can, from an adaptation, right? How do you add some urgency? Well, the lights are starting to go out. So now we need to get out of here. And like Phil was talking about, now you have to get back up those stairs. Up the stairs. Yeah. And the, he does talk about it in the book. The, the fact is like, they know, they, they had done all their early exploring in the complete darkness with, with just that spotlight. But when the lights started to go out, it felt scary to them because they had gotten so used to just having the eternal light of Rama in there. Mm-hmm. I, it's funny because, um, when I was first reading this, like the first few chapters, first couple chapters where it talks about Sky Guard, Star... Space Guard. Space, Space Guard. Guard. Yeah. Um, I really like the way it's written. And I feel like that, like, to the extent that he does any wordsmithing and wordcrafting and, and you know, the the, the craft of, of writing, I, I feel like it's quite lovely prose for the first couple of chapters. And then he gets to the point where it's like, okay, now I'm going <laughs> to describe things. And that kind of all goes out the window. Um, because he does some musings about the need for space guard, right? Yeah. Um, and it is kind of amazing yeah. that he chose September 11th to have the asteroid <laughs> impact. <laughs> I thought that too. I was like, huh, this is an interesting coincidence. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, I, I really enjoy the, those first couple of chapters and then, then it kind of shifts into, into something different once yeah. you have Commander Norton and, and everybody else. And I can't even remember most of the names. I'm surprised he came up with Norton, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a, a, a question for you, Seth. Uh-huh. Um, are we ready to transition to the adaptation talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> G- give, given your hatred of uh, um, overhead talk or narration, narration there you go, and, and scrolling text, how would how would you envision the introduction to this story? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know and maybe I'll throw this one to Phil because I've been thinking film. about that too. I'm like, yeah. Seth, Seth would hate any option I can possibly come up with right now. Well, I mean, <laughs> so uh, let me let's throw it over to Phil. Like, how how would you introduce the concept <laughs> of this? story in, in film. Right. And, and I guess, um, am I on an island here? Am I the only person who doesn't like the, the <laughs> opening scroll or narration to explain what's oh, happened up to this point? N- no, you're not alone. No. Lots of people dislike the that. The only time I like it is Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I like it is on a rewatch, because normally you, you read all that stuff when you watch mm-hmm. a film for the first time, and you can't take any of it in. You think, oh, all of this is important, but right. you can't remember any of it. And so it's only when you rewatch the film um, that you think, oh, yes, <laughs> that's what they're talking about. Got it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a horrible way to begin a film. For me, just a sentence is about the limit that I can take in uh, and hold in my head. Yeah. But when I rewatch the film, then I'll happily read your long scrolling text if it's there. Right. But I, I prefer you not to have it, basically. Um, what about narration right because the oh. the beginning of this book is why did we how did we find rama yeah. you have to explain that part of it you don't actually have to you could just start with just here we have space guard space guard exists yeah and that's what i would do if if i were adapting this i would 
dramatise the moment of discovery because that is inherently dramatic. Um, mm. Long before the explorers get to Rama and start exploring it, actually finding an object of alien origin within the solar system is dramatic. And in real life, we've had that in the last couple of years. There was that strange thing that passed through our solar system, which was actually a, a bit cylindrical. And right. mm-hmm. n- nobody knew quite where it came from. And nobody knew quite where it was going. But obviously, it's just a natural object that's yeah. fallen into some sort of hyperbolic orbit around the sun. And um But discovering one of those would be scientifically interesting and dramatic. So I would tend to begin with somebody doing a, a routine scan of the skies and then they they find an anomaly and they they get their little um little eyepiece and they're looking at the photographic plate mm-hmm. where there's mm-hmm. this strange dot and then they resolve to well we'll go and look at it again tonight. Um so kind of reminds then, me of uh, Independence Day. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all this has been done before, <laughs> but, yeah. but showing that moment of discovery. And then you've got the, um, well, we found this thing. What is it? Then you have the debate. And if you want to use the, uh, the, the, the committee that is debating what to do about it, that's where you can dramatize the debate. But, um, at some point, obviously, you've then got to send your explorers off because that's the main story is the exploration mm-hmm. of it. But I'd rather right. show it all than, than summarize it. Yeah. I, I was thinking of if you wanted to get any exposition across about Space Guard, right? You could introduce somebody who's new to the team. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and do a bunch mm-hmm. of, as you know, Jim, right. uh, <laughs> Italy was wiped out by, a, by an asteroid um, or a meteor strike. But, that can be a little awkward. It, it, right. I feel like it can be done organically, but there's lots of movies that that have like really brief scrolls or really brief uh, narration bits in them that I think work. Mm-hmm. Uh, just generally, I don't like it. I think for me, I I would get rid of the the Earth side almost entirely. Once once you've transitioned to we're exploring this thing, I would have them cut off from communications and have them have to be smart enough to figure everything out on their own. So they don't have uh, whatever the guy's name was who comes mm-hmm. up with the, well, it can only experience this much acceleration because you have that five kilometer wall on one side of the sea and the 50 meters on the other side. Right, right. Um, somebody could do that math, right? You have a smart person on the crew who could do that. Um so I think in order to raise the stakes, I would probably have them cut off entirely from Earth communications. I think that's, that's a good me. move. And I, I think the, the old committee on Earth is the least interesting part of the book. It's yeah. um, Ironically, it's the only part of the book where there is any real conflict between people. But it's, it just yeah. feels very false and unnecessary. So, yeah, get rid of it totally. I mean, you could keep it. And still have them cut off from communication. So you could you could have sort of confirmation of uh, like in Apollo thirteen in a couple of spots where they're the people on in in Houston are working on something, and the people on the Apollo thirteen are working on something, but they're not talking about it at the moment. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I got lost there trying to figure out how they would lose communication because the only reason people in Apollo thirteen were out of communication was when they were on the opposite side of the moon. Well, just say that the inside of Rama is a Faraday cage. <laughs> But there's yeah. a ship on the outside of Rama. I know. <laughs> so but it is that's, that's it fine. is a it is a Faraday cage, isn't it? It's yeah. a it's a metal cylinder closed at both ends. Yeah. That's a perfect Faraday cage. Nothing can get yeah. in or out. 
the door shuts and they don't know if it'll reopen. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, so I was thinking about this and, and I feel like uh, Villeneuve is a great choice for this movie because he's really, really great with visual style and letting things happen without a bunch, without a bunch of words. There is that, that weird exposition dump in the middle of Arrival that I've always kind of been like, did we need that? Could we have done that differently? Um, but, you know, if you had this done by Roland Emmerich, then, then of course, oh, Rama no. would be a threat to all of the planets, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, Moonfall is about to come out, right? Right. And, and it just looks ridiculous. Um, and if you gave somebody like him a movie like this, or Michael Bay or oh, Jerry gosh. Bruckheimer, um, you could see that they'd, they'd turn it into an action movie, and that would be very strange yeah. for, for this property. <laughs> I, I wrote down, before we started today, I wrote down six things that I think Hollywood um, loves, and, and okay. in, in general terms. And I think we can, uh, we're already applying some of these to Rama. So in no particular order, Hollywood loves action. And we can talk about where the action is in Rama. Hollywood loves spectacle. Hollywood loves jeopardy. And I don't mean the quiz show. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they are fond of it. But yeah, there's a limit. Um, Hollywood loves a character arc, and Hollywood loves a star turn. So the opportunity for a big star to do something interesting, dramatic, and Hollywood loves mystery slash revelation slash resolution of mystery. Now, mm-hmm. I think yeah, that might be a bad point. <laughs> with your talk of Ro- Roland Emmerich, um, that would be at the action and spectacle and jeopardy end of the spectrum. Yes. Um, but I think what the book does best is the mystery revelation aspect, and what but not it, the resolution. Not the resolution. It, yeah. it it steadfastly refuses to really give us a resolution. It just allows Rama to disappear mysteriously. But that that I think is something that could easily be um, improved in an adaptation. And of course, the thing that the mo- uh, sorry the thing that the book does worst is character arc. There are characters, sort of. There's some conflict between characters. But there is no real sense of arc. Now, Colin was arguing you don't have to have character arc, but Hollywood firmly believes that you do. So mm-hmm. somewhere we need to get a character arc from someone. And, and the logical thing would be for it to be Norton, who right. undergoes right. something. Uh, I don't know what that would be. but uh, Yeah, I was. I, I kind of want to go through those one at a time and talk about where mm-hmm. we think, you know, the... the where the action is and where, where the other things are. Sure. I was listening yeah. to a podcast recently about Rendezvous with Rama, and he kind of was saying that there's, there's more than one way that he could see someone adapting this. And one, one would be, and Phil hinted at this earlier, um, sort of like in Gravity, where, where the events of Gravity are kind of the Sandra Bullock character coming to terms with something that has happened to her. Um, Arrival, you have some of that too, with, with her coming around to the idea that the things happen that happen. Um, and where you could make the entire exploration of Rama, this philosophical, like personal journey kind of thing. Um, that would be one way to adapt it. But he, he ended up coming around to the idea that no, let's, let's make 
the perfect hard science fiction movie where it's just about the spectacle and the exploration, which I think Colin would agree with. Unfortunately, the guy started the episode by basically insulting people who like books like Rondo with Rama. <laughs> I, was look, I was trying to look up the name of the... I think it's just called Science Fiction with... Uh, oh, I can't remember his name. Damien something. Yeah. You know, the thing is, if you wanted to add those to Rama mm-hmm. without changing the, the basics of it, like yeah. if you explain Rama, I think you haven't adapted it well. Mm. If um, if you completely mm. omit any kind of discussion about what this means for humanity, yeah. like this, you know, we're not alone anymore. Mm-hmm. What's the intent of this to us? Right. Should we be threatened by it? And how do we respond to it? If you omit those things, I think you've also failed to adapt drama. Okay, let me let me uh, push in on one of those things on on the if you omit the effect on humanity. Mm-hmm. If you went my way, where. The, almost the entire movie is told from the perspective of the crew. Can you still execute the effect on humanity in that subset, in that smaller group, where where essentially you talk about the philosophy of what this does to to the way they think? Because on the crew, right, you have you have one of the guys who's a cosmic Christer. You do, I, according to the book. You could probably get rid of that, but you could keep it too. But I'm wondering, what what do you think? Would it be possible to do it on that smaller scale? Could you have Anne Hathaway talk about how love is the thing that transcends time and space? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. It's the worst line in the history of cinema cinema, um, in Interstellar. I think you you would have to have them coming back out of Rama and mingling with the rest of humanity. And this is if we're... If we're adopting the Seth model, um, where we get rid of everyone else from the movie except these central characters, I think we would have to bring them out of Rama at the end, put them back into society, and see that they have changed. Mm. And that society hasn't, but society has to for some reason. Now, I don't, I don't know the, the details of those reasons, but we would have to find some way that they are clearly transformed and are, in a way, true believers that um, everything must change from this point, and maybe everyone you know, else on Earth is, is unchanged. You know that that echoes what a lot of astronauts have said, and that yes. when you look down on the Earth, it completely changes your perspective. This sure. idea of political boundaries and other kinds of things really don't matter from mm-hmm. out there, right? Yeah. And if you go one step beyond that to know that it's not just us, yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking that those uh, those humanity level discussions happen around the campfire, literal campfire, maybe like inside Rama campfire. Yeah. Okay. So it, at uh, at that point, I'm starting to think about uh, Star Trek Five. I know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit. Row, row, <laughs> no, row your boat. And I'm really blind exactly. <laughs> Um, it's those discussions you have with people after you've spent all day exploring and you're having a meal and you're sitting around relaxing and you know you don't smoke pot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry, Colin. About what it means, what yeah. we discovered, and what it means to each one of us. Um, and I think the conflict that you that would need to be built in there is the military versus uh, civilian approach. Mm. You know, almost like the abyss. Sure. Right? The military is going to have a say because it's the only way to get a ship out there in time. Yep. There's going to be a bomb because if you don't know what it is, we blow it up. That's right. what we do, which right. unfortunately. And and the book kind of does cover that with the Hermians, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, so there has to be some kind of struggle about what it means if we blow it up. Yeah. 
And so then you get some action, you get some conflict between characters. Yeah. Uh, maybe the bots steal the bomb and you have to go get it so that it doesn't blow up in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, um, I mean, if we're talking about where the action comes from, right, the, the book does provide that with, with the Hermans showing up and there, then there being that little side quest that uh, whatever the guy's name is goes on. Um, the lunar bicyclist. <laughs> no, 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 not that guy. The um, the Cosmo Chrysler. Rodrigo. Oh. He, where, yeah, Rodrigo. That's right. Yeah. Where he where he goes on on his little mission to disable yeah. the disable the bomb, bomb the, yeah. disable the missile. Yep. Uh, before you know, in the lag time between when they see that he's there, um, and of course, in a movie, he's going to flip off the camera, um, <laughs> <laughs> or go hey. <laughs> What else? What else for the action side of things? Do we think sailing? Sailing. Would you, would you improve? Would you? I, I I don't know whether or not you'd want to actually include that, but oh, I think so. Yeah, the sailing I think so. part, and then you got the dude that does the, the bicycle. Right. Yeah. For the visuals alone, I feel like the the sailing thing would be really really cool to sail the, the cylindrical sea. Right. That's yeah. the name of the yeah. chapter. Right. That would be neat. The overhead waves and coming around. I I wasn't totally sure that I bought that somebody would be able to get on an, an interstellar mission, you know, uh, and, and smuggle on their bicycle thing, <laughs> their dragonfly bike. <laughs> I mean, it, it does hang a lantern yeah. on it. It says, wait, 20 kilograms. Um, <laughs> how did you get away with that? You know, um, well, there's guys that smuggled all kinds of stuff on submarines. So <laughs> uh, yeah, on submarines, not quite as, as yeah, weight dependent, I suppose. Right, right. But may, maybe this is, um, if you, if they have, a space elevator, then it doesn't cost quite so much to launch stuff so that you can get away with putting extra stuff on the ship. How about that? <laughs> Tie it in with Fountains of Paradise. Cool. <laughs> well, don't forget that this ship, is, is it called the Endeavour? Yes. Um, yes. It, it was a, originally on some other mission, and it was only sent right. to look at Rama because it was kind of the closest thing available. Closest one, yeah. um, so yeah, it's... it's- you know, right. you, you could you could rationalize it by saying that they've been on some really boring mission, just going around Jupiter for mm. four years or something, just going round and round in circles. And so they've been able to bring aboard all sorts of things to keep themselves amused and entertained. And this is what this guy happens to have. It just happens to yeah. be on the ship. I, I, I think it's a terrible they... thing, though. I, I think it's horrible in the book. It's just... It's my least favorite scene when he gets on that <laughs> yeah. on that bike. <laughs> Me too, actually. I, I like the fact that he gets to. I mean, I think Clark did some math in his head and was like, "How do I get somebody to the other side?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, Lunar Olympics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's it's kind of my least favorite part as well. Mm. But but it it adds some tension, right? Where where he crashes on the other side, yeah. and they have to figure out how to retrieve him. Yeah. yeah, and that is one of those situations where they they do the math themselves and realize, okay, if you jump, you'll probably be okay-ish. <laughs> <laughs> cross your hands, cross your legs. Woo. Yep. <laughs> you know, one of the advantage an adaptation has today versus when uh, Clark wrote all this mm-hmm. is Space Guard exists, and, more or less. Yeah, yeah Umuamua has come through the solar system. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are aware of the imminent risk of an asteroid impact. In fact, yeah. in the news just yesterday, there was another close uh, close by approach that was announced. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that exposition that you wouldn't need to have. But yeah, I mean, you, you would like to develop a way to explain why we might have some ship 
out there on standby, just ready to go on a moment's notice. Right. Or we we hijack it for some other purpose. Or mm-hmm. uh, Would you recast anything? Because, I mean, obviously, if this is going to happen today, it's going to be a more diverse cast. Oh, sure. Um, Morgan Freeman, who yeah. uh, bought the rights for it for his, his uh, broadcast, not broadcast. Production. Production company. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, wanted to play Norton. Right. And he's the guy, you know, so I've read the book several times. And I was geeking out about the hard science fiction because that's that's what I do. Yeah. And he he made this quote in an interview on YouTube saying, um, and I've mentioned it several times, is Rama answers the question, are we all that is, and how will humanity and individuals react to it? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he's still interested in playing the part of Captain Norton at his age. <laughs> but, <Right>. uh, <laughs> man, it just, but we, we, I feel like Norton requires an actor of his caliber, though, for sure. Yeah, he could play the president and get uh, Chua to edge oh, yeah. to, to play Norton. <laughs> sure, sure. Or Denzel Washington. Yeah, yeah. Although he's he's on the older side as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, get get somebody, get John David Washington to do it, get his son to do it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and then have Denzel play the president of the United, United <laughs> Federation of Planets. Um, I mean, that's one way to add stakes, right? Where you have a, you have a relationship. Between characters, yeah, but we—you uh, had mentioned there wouldn't be any off-off Rama conversation, right? 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 Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm allowing that there could be. Um, before we go any further, anything you would cut from the book? Are you asking me personally, or the, you, group? I, I, the the group? The but group, but I'm looking at you, Colin. You're at me. <laughs> <laughs> I presume you would cut the 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 musings on uh, how women's breasts do unfortunate things in zero in low gravity. <laughs> Yeah, and and oh, yeah. the the post mission orgy, post mission orgy. I figured that would be the one that you would cut, um, even though it's really only described. I mean, mentioned right, in right, right, right. It's just it's kind of one of those things. You're like, really? That's superfluous. Yeah, I think I, mean, all, I don't know much about uh, space missions. But. <laughs> I think that's all of that is Clark trying to look as if he was a a, a really with it nineteen um, seventies writer. You know, um, maybe and it, it it just makes it look very dated today all of that stuff so yeah. yeah cut all of that it's just irrelevant it's a bit like um logan's run has some yes. sort of I, I don't know what they're called but people go to these sort of sex parties the love logan's room run. oh yeah right. and, and it's all done in a very timid way but quite um open you know the characters are quite overt yeah. about what it is they're doing and it just feels like it feels like your dad's made the film and you think no, don't, don't do this this is embarrassing <laughs> dad made a rama <laughs> well that's that's only the stuff in the in the film in the book there's also the scene where he has to get away from the the rocket biker group oh in logan's run, right. logan's run. Oh, yeah. yes yeah <laughs> Oh boy. Okay, so what what was next on the list, Phil? You said there was um, action. I had, I had action and spectacle, which uh, I really are the same thing. But I think to me, yeah. action is sort of moment to moment, and spectacle is big explosions and you know stuff that fills the screen. And I think the spectacle is just this fifty kilometer diameter cylinder. Right. And yeah. seeing how small the people are, and I think for the first time in history, it, in you know where we are now with filmmaking this can be done very easily and very cheaply whereas if yeah. this film had been made in the 70s it would be very difficult to make mm-hmm. people look really tiny compared to a massive um uh, big dom object um <laughs> but i think there's plenty of 
plenty of scope for action and spectacle. The next one on my list was Jeopardy. And mm. someone earlier, I can't remember who it was, one of us was saying that there is some Jeopardy in terms of the characters inside Rama, maybe under threat, maybe from the water that melts, um, maybe from these sort of robotic creatures that turn up. But I think what Hollywood would want is some Jeopardy from Rama itself. So why is Rama a threat to the solar system? Because the scientists would very quickly figure out that it's either going to collide with us or not. And if they decide it's not going to collide with us, then there is no Jeopardy from that. So I think what Hollywood would tend to do is to say... Well, it's got to be that it's on a collision course with Earth and the, the exploration team have to go in there and divert it in some way. Uh, that's what I fear that Hollywood would try to do. I think Denis Villeneuve is smarter than that, but um, how much control he would have over this whole process, I don't know. That would, that would be unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could, if if you had the the planet side story, right? You could have disagreement between scientists on, no, it looks like it's going to, to hit at a perfect angle to slingshot away from us around the sun. Yes. And then you could have other people saying, no, 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 no. We think it's been making subtle course corrections and it's going to crash into Mercury. And that would be the impetus for Mercury doing what it, what it does in the book. And I was going to go reread. Does the book explain exactly why the Hermians wanted to nuke it? Cause I didn't feel like it was very well developed. It's part of their character. Okay. Because they want to be the closest thing to the sun. Yeah. No. No. They're, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. That that's that was the reason. That thought anyway is it. Once they realized it was make it was slowly making course corrections. The Hermians were afraid that it was going to come in between them and the sun, and jeopardize their situation, because they rely heavily on being the closest planet to the sun, and and getting all the energy from the sun and delivering that energy to other planets and mining and all that stuff. And they they thought that. Uh, Rama, yeah, Rama was going to interrupt that, and rather than risk interrupting that, whether they know or not, they were just going to blow it up. Huh? That's what I remember. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> I, I don't remember. I mean, you're a first time read, so yeah. you'd think that those yeah, of us have they, read they, it more. That was they had, they had a clear impetus for the threat. Okay, and that's that's where I think the jeopardy would come in. Not necessarily it's going to collide and destroy Mercury. That's a bit excessive but i suppose i can see hollywood doing that that's sure. that's the roland emmerich version <laughs> so yeah i understand no one here has read rama 2 except for me correct correct uh no one in this room i have about phil no i okay. i kind of refuse to to go there <laughs> okay so that that is the very plot of rama 2 ah is what what i just said yeah, so oh, okay. I, I don't remember that happening. I remember the Mercurians being more uh, aggressive and paranoid than most rest of the people, and so oh yeah, definitely yeah. So they decide that they're going to take care of this problem on behalf of humanity. Mm-hmm. In Rama two, another Rama ship comes, and this time we're more ready for it. Mm-hmm. He, you know, mm-hmm. we've had they had like seventy years uh, right. to, to you know decide if it was going to come again and when it was going to come again, and yeah, um, it's it's more important that they do something now because right. the the unaltered trajectory of Rama has it impacting with Earth. Uh, so okay. even though they know it can adjust the attitude, they know it's aiming right at right at them after it slingshots around mm-hmm. the sun. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's not it's not the same plot as Rama. 
But there's also another author involved. Right. And it's yeah. 20 years, 15, 20 years later. This mm. is Gentry something? Gentry Lee. Yeah. I've not read any of those. I've, I've never heard anyone say a nice word about them, actually. So. <laughs> it goes in some very interesting directions. Hmm. Um, but does it make the mistake that you're talking about with where if you adapt it and you explain it, then you've defeated the purpose? Does it fall into that trap? So, you know, the, the last line of, of Rama, which everyone says, you know, was, was guaranteeing that there would be sequels. Mm-hmm. Clark says he never meant to mean to have that there would be sequels. Right. Yeah, which is curious. Yeah, yeah. it's just a record scratch at the end of the yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, author's original intent was you never know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, four books later, or actually two books later, you learn kind of what what Rama does, the Ramas do as they come through solar systems. Mm-hmm. And then in the last book, you get to meet the creators and you know, what their whole purpose is. And so, right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I feel like that spoils it. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. it, it reminds me kind of of uh, Ringworld, which is another Hugo winner, hmm. but there's a, there's a series of books after that where you, you know, get the engineers of Ringworld and, and other things where it's, it's, it's another big dumb object with a more engaging character plot just because the characters are really interesting because there's not just humans there's aliens as well so it's uh, it's pretty fun but yeah future books i don't know if it would be diminishing returns there either yeah spectacle i I think is built in like phil said Mm -hmm. Um, but then the yeah the jeopardy that's the the points you have in there are what if you were going to have the hermian plot you know what what exactly Mm -hmm. is going on there how do we how do we defeat it do you do the same kind of thing where you have the covert mission to to defeat it yeah Um, and then, and then there's the more personal Jeopardy, uh, you know, them sailing the ship and having right. problems. Yeah, right. Doing the, the aerial bicycle. And- right. I, I still I do like the idea of uh, even though the aerial bicycle stuff doesn't do much for me. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that they had to figure out how to rescue him was the very Apollo thirteen part of it. Right. Well, what do we do? Yeah. Because um, we don't want to leave him behind. Right. Uh, what else was on your list, Phil? Uh, after Jeopardy, I had character arc. And we've we've sort of danced around that with possibilities uh, of what we might do with the central character. But I think to do it successfully, you've got to kind of figure out what Rama means to humanity. Mm. And then you've got to play that out metaphorically for one character. Now, quite how you do that, I don't know. Um, But we've seen other films where there is first contact... Um, there's Arrival, of course. There's Contact, based on the Carl Sagan novel. Um, mm. And, well, I suppose there's, there's various episodes of Star Trek and other TV series as well. Um, sure. And I suppose what you're looking for is you, you're wanting something where the wow of Rama uh, gives our central character something to ponder on in his or her own life. But I don't know what, so I'm I'm not mm. going to get the gig as the screenwriter for this clearly because <laughs> I don't have any ideas. But um, I I know what needs to be done, but I just don't know how to do it right. in this particular case. Yeah. That would make for a very interesting piece of writing. I yeah. think that would be neat to see if they pull it off if they do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Character arc would be something that would have to be added kind of whole cloth mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean the religious person is having a crisis of faith the military person is having a i'm supposed to blow this up but now i'm not sure if blowing it up is the right thing to do sure what's the cost of doing that mm-hmm. uh you know the mission commander probably has to balance the the benefit to humanity versus 
all the people he's in charge of that are there. Right. Uh, you're going to have a red shirt that's going to get chomped by one of the bot sharks. <laughs> that's just that would increase the stakes. Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. And spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. What I what I really. I guess with with more modern filmmaking techniques and, and that kind of stuff, the, the ability to show microgravity and to show the differences between the early stages of going down the stairs, you know, and, and the and the different effects of gravity. Of course, you're still going to end up with the Martian problem where you're filming the Martian on Earth. And so the different gravity on Mars and Earth, you're never going to really show that part of it, right? Because um, yeah. it's only like 50% gravity even all the way on the ground on Rama, right? Right. Um, and unfortunately, if you can't show that effectively, then you can't really do the skydive thing um, because you need to... Or I guess you could say maybe the atmospheric pressure was higher, so it would slow him down as well. Maybe. Well, or velocity but, would be different. But. but then again, the gravity is only what it is because that's what Clark tells us. You know, he set right. the dimensions of Rama in order to produce that level of gravity. You could actually make it um what would it need to be to have more gravity bigger presumably yeah um you can yeah, make it bigger or, or rotating more quickly yeah yeah so you just need to change those variables to get um normal yeah. 1g uh, if that suits your purpose as a filmmaker right yeah or maybe you have them talking as they're getting ready to land what's the internal gravity supposed to be like well on the circumference it'll be almost like three quarters gravity so you'll never notice a difference right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 50 percent to a hundred percent is a big difference 75 yeah probably yeah. and yeah. E even if it is a difference you seed that idea in the audience's mind to keep them in and, and not right. have them lose right. their disbelief right 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 yeah i mean i i enjoy many a space movie where you never see anybody in zero g even though they're on a ship that doesn't have any spinning parts yeah or maybe it has a spinning part but you're like but the, the whole plates. thing isn't yeah. there. <laughs> Right, gravity plates. Yes. Gravity plates. Artificial gravity. I'm I'm fine with it. But probably not in you know, if it was supposed to be set twenty years from now, mm -hmm. I'm probably not gonna buy artificial gravity. But, you know, we do have the technology to show the more you know, do wire work and do do other stuff. Use the vomit comment. Um <laughs> and and, oh, and show yeah. people flying around. I, I definitely prefer that to to wire work just because I feel like you can tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um at some point, you have to get one of the collector editions of Apollo 13 and watch the director uh, interview, not the commentary, but the interview with Ron Howard, because mm -hmm. they show him a bunch of scenes, and he talks through every scene and says, well, when you look at it from this angle, this is Bill Pullman sitting on a board, counterbalanced across a bucket by four other people, bouncing them slowly up and down. Mm -hmm. Now, in this one, we were in oh, the C-103, yeah. and and the, the lengths they went to were yeah. just fantastic. And, mm. yeah, that's cool. Loved it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what was left on the list, Phil? Um, after character arc, I had star turns. Mm. You, you, you need something in here that um, is going to be a memorable moment or a memorable scene for some big-name Hollywood actor who is going to say, <laughs> it's got to be me, it's got to be me who plays that part. And right. as Colin says, for years it was um, Morgan Freeman saying, I, I've got to play that part, but I, yeah. I think he's a bit too old, really. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. Well, I mean, on one hand, it's a shame, right, that he's too old for it. But on the other hand, if you tried to make this in 1997, it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> yeah. Where, you, you know, like right now, like like James Cameron could direct this and probably do a great job um, with with his visual style. Even when you, if you look at, um, 
when I saw Avatar in the theater in 3D, mm. when um, Sam Worthington's character wakes up, mm-hmm. you know, from his cold sleep or whatever it was on that big, it, it looks like a big cylindrical ship. There was mm. the sleeper ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cameron's the kind of person who could, who could have that sense of, of uh, the visual style, but maybe not the, all the sensibilities that we'd want from, from somebody for this <laughs> particular book. <laughs> it's interesting to consider different directors though. Um, we, you know, we've already talked about the, the Emmerich version of this. Right. And we've been pondering Denis Villeneuve doing it. And now you've mentioned Cameron. Obviously, each director has a different approach to storytelling and the, the things that are important in their movies. And I think if, if it were Emmerich or Michael Bay, it would be all about the action and the explosions. And they wouldn't care about the characters particularly. If it was, Spielberg, there'd probably need to be some some children in there somewhere, you know, so we could have a bit of family business going on. Um, if it's Cameron, it would probably be long and drawn out and of epic scope, but not necessarily emotionally engaging. But with Denis Villeneuve, I kind of feel that I would come out of the cinema and I would be thinking, I would be reflecting on what the character has just gone through and yeah. what Rama means to me. Uh, he's yeah. that kind of filmmaker. Certainly with Arrival, um, it, it's a film which has... A, it, it, it doesn't kind of have twists in the conventional Hollywood sense, but it does have moments where you kind of reinterpret the world through the eyes of the character as she discovers stuff you know and i can't if you ask me to summarize the plot of arrival i couldn't even do it because i can't remember precisely what happens um but i i remember the feeling of watching arrival and yep. i remember the feeling of watching um did he do blade runner 2049 as well yes yeah um i remember the feeling of watching that even though i couldn't necessarily tell you plot points from it and that's the thing about denis villeneuve is that there's a feeling and that's what mm. makes me feel positive about him doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds sounds like, proper. <laughs> I was joking with Colin that we, we need to see the Wes Anderson version of Rendezvous with Rama. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully symmetrical <laughs> compositions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Static <laughs> Interesting camera. miniature use. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else we want to talk about about this? Are you well? Let, let's let's go around, Colin. I mean, are you positive on the idea of the Rama adaptation? I am. Uh, Rama adaptation. Sorry. Yeah, and I think I think Villeneuve is the right guy to do it. Okay. You know, looked at how faithfully he's adapted Dune and how well he's that that mm-hmm. ad, that method of adaptation has been. Yeah. Um, and Rama lends itself to a visual spectacle, and that that says a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of his movies fall into that category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even ones that you don't really care for, like you—you you weren't a huge fan of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but you no. can't—you can't say it wasn't be- beautiful. No, yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, and like Phil said, I mean, that, that's definitely one where that movie isn't so much about the plot; it—it it, it is about the the feeling of it. Um, I re- I rewatched it, and I just just loved just letting it kind of wash over me. So, yeah. what about you, James? Are you excited? I want to know. I want to see who they get for Norton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who would you suggest? You At this any? point, I don't know. I, okay. I yeah. I, I mean, I would love to have seen Morgan Freeman. Just get Jessica Chastain <laughs> and make it canonical with uh, the Martian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I, I'm kind of wondering if they would go with 
a big name, a big name, good actor, or maybe someone unknown and or not. I think both have their pros and cons. It depends on how much weight you're going to put on that character, right? Yeah. If you're going to do like like Phil said, where mm-hmm. where you're going to hang the philosophy of it on this main character, it yeah. But I kind of feel quantity. like if 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 our assessment of Hollywood is correct, I feel like you kind of have to, and mm-hmm. so it kind of does have to be yeah a big name actor that can pull that kind of acting off, though, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you're not going to put like. The Rock in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Emmerich version. <laughs> he, he needs to he needs to pull the door open by himself, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, while holding onto a helicopter or yeah. something. So. <laughs> Sam Neill, because of his previous uh, spaceship, foreign spaceship work. Oh, there you go. Event Horizon. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, what about Lawrence Fishburne? Lawrence yeah. Fishburne. He's getting old too, though. Yeah. <laughs> Larry Fishburne. Well, to keep it simple, why not Edward Norton? (laughs) (laughs) You know, because you know what his name is then. You don't have a problem. (laughs) Problem after reading Rama is you can't remember who any of the characters were. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, like we talked about in The Fountains of Paradise, right? The characters tend to be trait, right? Yeah. There's a lady who knows Mm, how to sail. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Guy who uh, is super serious in Cosmic Chrysler, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How do you conveniently have someone that knows how to sail on a freaking starship? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, astronauts come from all different places. <laughs> I, I found that to be a little unbelievable. <laughs> like, oh, really? Well, it's no <laughs> less believable than, oh, yeah. I happen to have a lunar bicycle in my yeah, back. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the whole, the whole Moon Olympics backstory is like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was. That's like Phil said. I think I think there's ways you could do it. Where in this case, you could you could say I, I wanted something in the book that said why he had that with him because he must mm. have had it with him because he thought he'd be able to whip it out at some point and use it. Sorry, had that one up. Um, you know, he must have had it with him because he thought, well, while we're on this mission, maybe we'll be someplace sufficiently low gravity for me to get this thing out, but. Were they going to Titan? I can't remember what they were what they were doing. I thought they were out around Saturn somewhere. But no, the the captain asks him, and he says exactly why he had it with him. I don't remember what the reason was, but it's explained. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, it was something. Like, yeah, yeah. Huh, he was yeah. Working on it in preparation for the next Olympic or whatever, and I think they were supposed to stop at the moon or something. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you could make it a little less ridiculous. Throw out the yeah. lunar Olympics and just say this right. is a standard piece of equipment that <laughs> that we keep around for use in low gravity, you mm-hmm. know, atmospheres. <laughs> Doesn't work well in <laughs> atmospheres. Remember, right? Well, well, no. I mean, it, or, or it could be something that they build out of like spare parts or something. That would be there. Cool. We go. If they find like if they find stuff in Rama that allows them to do that three D printing, that's actually a really know? good idea. Mm-hmm. Where where you have them maybe get into the the design area yeah. where they find all the, all the things and go, hey, this this could this work. could work. Yeah. Of course, it would be uh, animated, <laughs> but they find yeah. that at the end. Not at the beginning or the middle when you need to get. Yeah, Ooh, I know, I know. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying that may- maybe they accidentally started at the other end. Yeah, because <laughs> if if we go with your the Seth adaptation and you have them cut off from everybody else, mm-hmm. you you have all these smart people and I think you know it's yeah. a smart enough guy with the ex- experience could probably pull building something all out of scratch. Yeah. I'm gonna feel really smart, you know, like if, Tony Stark in a cave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna feel really smart if the if the adaptation comes out and they get cut off communications i'm just i'm gonna brag about that and i'm never gonna let you hear the end of it so. but if not we'll never speak of this again 
You should just be tweeting at Denny and see if he listens to you. There we go. <laughs> uh, anything else? Anything? I, I guess uh, Phil, I, I, we didn't get your your thoughts on. Are you are you excited for the adaptation? Or are you? Yeah, nervous? yeah. Why not? Uh, I I don't see that it can be harmed by uh, adapting it. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to bring out things that aren't in the book. And it, it it's unusual to um, – when Hollywood adapts things, quite often they change things, and you think, why did you change that? Of all the things you could have done, why on earth did you change that? But with this – my life. <laughs> <laughs> but with, um, with this particular book, there, there's a series of events that take place – they won't need to show them all and they can't show them all. They can choose the ones they want to show and they can overlay a story about character because there isn't one there to, to mess with, you know? So yeah, I, I feel fairly positive about it. But the fact that it's uh, Denis Villeneuve makes me feel good about it. But I will say that um, just because somebody's announced a film doesn't mean that the film will ever be made. So yes. Don't yeah. get too excited until you actually see photos, photos, or it didn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially given the history here, where Morgan Freeman wanted to do it for so long, and yeah. it, it still never happened. And there's there's yeah. lots of adaptations that we've we've heard announced. The Robo Robocalypse, right? Um, yeah. Daniel H. Wilson. You know, sometimes they get optioned, and options expire, and. Well, or or other things pop up and you can't do them on the timeline that you want, and then you know it has to be in a slot to work well for the the production companies. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially if they're going to go to space, you know, they got to think about launch windows and. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although you know, maybe Villeneuve has a little more say because you know, his star is certainly rising right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Final thoughts. Did we just do that? That was that. I think 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 we just did final thoughts. I think we pretty much did. But can I give you a final, final thought? Yes, please. Um, And a bit of further reading. Uh, Apparently, I haven't, I've not read this myself, but according to Mike Resnick, who was a famous science fiction writer, uh, he said that James White's 1968 novel, All Judgment Fled, is, and I quote, Rama done right. Oh. <laughs> so all judgment fled go and look that one up <laughs> read it and see if you want that made into a movie all right colin your mission should you choose to accept it <laughs> <laughs> all judgment fled yeah that, w- that would be interesting that's a good recommendation uh this was a bit meandering i i, I think i uh <laughs> it would have been a good idea for me to connect with Phil and find out about his six points of, of things that we could have structured the entire discussion <laughs> on instead of going for a half hour before getting to that. But, um, but thank you for bringing that, Phil. That's what editing is for. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> if you have the stomach for it. <laughs> right. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. It's yeah, always fun to talk to you. You're very welcome. Good I've to, enjoyed good it. To hear you again. And it's good, always good to be here. All right. Um, well, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Let us know what you think about uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Um, what would you like to see in an adaptation? We've, we've talked about this on Twitter a little bit. Um, gotten some opinions there on, yeah. on, <laughs> on that. Um, but uh, I'm not sure what we're doing next, but we'll figure it out and uh, let you know on social media. So, all right. so until next time, may the road rise up to meet you, and may the book always fall open to where you left off. Bye, everybody. Ciao.